Amen. If you want to take your Bibles and open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. I'm going to be reading the first four verses of this chapter, and that's going to be our focus today. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. This is what the Word of God says. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I've been anxiously looking forward to this moment now. What a monumental task it is to preach Your Word. But what a monumental, monumental task it is to preach Your Word and to focus on the most significant, climactic, highest redemptive event that has ever transpired on the face of planet earth or has ever taken place in the history of humanity. That is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Father, we look for your help now. We pray that you would assist us to rightly set Christ forth and to rightly receive Christ in to our hearts. That we would feast on Him, even as He commanded us. That we would look upon Him, that we would gaze upon His glory, that we would gaze upon His beauty today as our resurrected Lord. Father, we pray that You would revive our ability to truly, truly understand the word gospel, good news from above. And Father, we pray that you would help us to realize and to recognize and to understand, oh, the depth, the height, the width, the breadth of the glory of God as it is revealed in the face of Your Son, Jesus. Give us hearts to understand, Lord. Give us a mind. Give us ears to hear. And teach us today, Lord. Instruct us by Your way. Father, we ask that You would help us now in full and in total dependence upon Your Spirit. We look for your blessing. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
Amen. Wow, a tremendous text. As I sat there marveling in the worship and basking in the beauty of the praises of the people of God, I thought, this is wonderful. A lot of people here today. I remind you, all of you, that every Sunday is a commemoration of the resurrection, and that means you'll all be back next week. That's the reason the early church gathered on Sunday. It was because it was on the first day of the week that Jesus rose. It was on the first day of the week that Jesus appeared. First day of the week, the church gathered commemorating that. I want to give you the title of my sermon. Once again, I said it in my prayer a little bit, but the title of the sermon today is not, How Does Easter Give Me a Good Day for the Rest of Sunday? It has the ability to do that. It's not, how does the message of Easter help me to be a better father, mother, son, daughter, husband, wife? It has the capacity to do that. But what I want to focus on today is the resurrection and then the vindication of the good news. The resurrection and the vindication of the good news. Why? Because the good news is just as much part of this context as much as the resurrection. Matter of fact, Paul begins that, doesn't he, with this letter? He begins in that way in verse 1, the gospel of God. But brothers and sisters, when I say vindication, I'm already alerting you to the fact that there is something that needs to be vindicated. And therefore, I want to begin today talking about the modern gospel crisis that we're in today. How many of you have read something out of church history? How many of you read one book of church history? How many of you have taken a course in church history? How many of us care about church history? Brothers and sisters, it is important. It is very important that we know the controversies and the wars and the battles that have transpired in the past. If we don't, we'll lose sight of them, forget them. We'll have historical uh, amnesia to those things and we will repeat the errors and we will not be able to rightly define and rightly name and rightly identify the errors that are arising all around us in our own modern context. You've got to know what happened to your faith as the centuries rolled on. From the moment that Christ rose to today. Every single one of us should be historically oriented to know where are we situated in the entire panoply of God's plan. This is not a lesson on church history. However, it does recognize that Christianity has always had many enemies, many nemesis, many foes. Think of Arianism, Pelagianism, Sabellianism, Uh, I'm not going to define all these. Some of this stuff is homework for y'all because I I have work to do. But Arius taught that Jesus was, uh, you know, a created being. He was a creature, maybe like Michael the archangel. He He was not God of very God. Pelagius made all sorts of heresies against the faith. He taught the concept of tabula rasa. He believed man was just a blank slate. He was born morally neutral. He believed in the total freedom of the will. He believed that... Basically, man saved himself. Sibelius went on to teach heresies regarding the Trinity and so on and so forth. 
These are ancient heresies of the first few centuries and many, many more, Noetus, Praxius, many others. But in recent history, liberalism has resulted in the need for a new defense of the historical Jesus, of historical Christianity. And this has really exploded right after the period known as the Enlightenment period at the end of the 18th century and the early 19th century, which basically exalted human reason, rationalism, as the final bar of authority for all things dealing with reality. And therefore, what ended up happening was that things that were not deemed reasonable, rational, and natural were dismissed. And so, from the Enlightenment period, you had higher criticism of the Bible, eroding the biblical, insp- uh, biblical inspiration, eroding biblical inerrancy. That led to academic liberalism. And you see the bastions of this, the icons of this, in places like Princeton, Yale, Oxford, Cambridge, all at one point thoroughly Christian. Remind you, the president of Yale at one point, was Jonathan Edwards. Princeton, you had some of the greatest thinkers in the history of the Christian church. Men like Hodge. Men like Machen. And so, well, thanks be to God that for men like B.B. Warfield and Charles Hodge and Abraham Kuyper and Machen and Van Til and many others, Christianity in one sense was defended. And even more recently in your history and in mine, there's another important name that maybe none of us in this room even knows or has even spent any time with. An evangelical scholar by the name of Carl F. Henry who wrote a massive six-volume tome defending Revelation and defending the doctrines of the Christian faith. Carl F. Henry is so important, you, you need to really go and search it out. But what happened was that evangelical, evangelicalism was revived. It was, in, in one sense, uh, there was a recovery of the soul of evangelicalism, and that's good. But with the rise of evangelicalism, brothers and sisters, came the rise of ecumenicalism, of mere Christianity, non-denominationalism, the explosion of Christian mysticism, mainly represented by charismatic theology and other Pentecostal movements. These are all battles that we've been trying to fight for the last several decades, both in Reformed and non-Reformed churches. Just because you're Reformed, you're not immune to any of this. Where we are today is essentially a generation of Christendom that has just utterly fallen in love with itself. There is a, there is a spiritual narcissism at work today in Christianity, and I think we're kind of reaching the outer edges of it now. We're sort of fizzling out. Don't you feel it, guys? Technology, blogs, websites, social media platforms, they're all sort of coming to an end. People are inundated with a new blog every day. And so what's going on? Another aspect of what's going on with the gospel today is that there is a frantic focus on culture. Culture. And you see this focus that really wants to focus on culture at all costs, no matter what. This is seen in the recent explosion of ministries and churches and movements that focus on social issues like the social gospel or social justice and other things. 
They think that that has now become essential for the identity of the Christian message. And so, sadly, when good churches and good men are scrambling around trying to focus on these kinds of issues, other segments of the church are in a state of total theological and doctrinal freefall. You can see that in the movie that just came out, The American Gospel. How many of you guys see that? Just the rampant, rank, heretical error. Almost laughable, but it's there. And thousands upon thousands of professing Christians are being swayed. Swayed into prosperity movement. Swayed into the name it and claim it stuff. You think, that's, you think this stuff would go away. It's not going away. And so, because of this sort of theological and doctrinal compromise, what happens is that Christianity begins to capitulate to the culture in the attempt to reach the culture. And we've seen this with capitulations on things like sexuality, homosexuality, transgender issues, religious pluralism, political correctness, tolerance relativism, seeker sensitivism, the church growth consumerism, all the isms. They just go on and on and on. So let me give you a resource to say, this sounds like an ocean of problems. Yeah, it is. Let me give you one resource that every single person in this church should read. It's a book by Michael Horton. It's called Christless Christianity. And if you're not going to read David Wells, because David Wells is a little harder to read, read Michael Horton's book, Christless Christianity. He sort of answers and addresses many of these issues. It's as if for many Christians in the 21st century, Christianity, culture, these are all become things that kind of are mixed together. It's like Christianity and culture and sexuality and ecumenism and inclusivism and moralism and politics and technology and cultural trends that blow in and blow out. All these things are being shoved into the blender of humanity and we don't know what flavor is going to come out next. We're just sort of waiting to see what's the systemic issue. The systemic issue is the gospel, always. Never forget that. When sin, guilt, eschatology, revelation, and the mission and the identity of the church are up for grabs, is it any wonder, brothers and sisters, is it any wonder that the average Christian, the common man on the street, the average Christian, in the average church doesn't know what the gospel is. You think I'm joking? I talk to college students almost every week. And many of them, I ask them, what is the gospel? They cannot give you the most basic Sunday school level, level children's level curriculum answer of what the gospel is. They'll say something like, well the Bible. That's not the gospel. Well, um, Jesus saving us or something? (laughs) That's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. And so I wanted to sort of focus in on just one aspect of the gospel, because isn't it amazing that in this very section, the Apostle Paul says that he was separated for what? Set apart for the gospel of God. There is, there is no confusion on the part of Paul what the gospel is. No confusion. He knows what it is. He knows that he's been called to it. 
And so completely contrary to all of the religious pluralism in which we find ourselves today, here we have a statement, autobiographic statement, by one man spoken in inflexible truth and in total dogma. I, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And that gospel is not up for grabs. It is not deconstructible. You don't deconstruct the gospel because you cannot reconstruct the gospel because the gospel is not under construction. It is fixed forever, bound to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that is precisely what people are completely, universally almost ignorant about. You could be raised in a church your whole life and still not get the gospel right. You could be raised in the church your whole life and if somebody asks the right questions before you know it, you are a heretic in the way that you're articulating the gospel. I've seen it done many times. So we've got to keep our eyes on the ball. This first page or so on my notes just exploded out of me. I thought, oh man, my church. (sighs) Where does Paul begin? Hey, if someone asked you, define the gospel. Give me the gospel. What is the gospel? Where do you begin? Where would you begin? You know where Paul begins? You know where I'm going. You know where Paul begins? He begins in the Old Testament. Surprise, surprise. Let's look at it. He was set apart for the gospel of God. Thus, the gospel is the antecedent of verse 2. That's the subject. Which, that's what he's talking about. The gospel, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. Concerning his son. And so Paul tells us that it was through the Old Testament that the gospel was promised. It was promised by inspired prophets in the inspired text of the sacred scripture, referring to the Old Testament and now, of of course, extending to the New Testament. Therefore, if any church, any believer, any Christian, any movement, any seminary, anyone wants to say anything truthful about the gospel, you don't go to psychology. You don't go to culture. You don't go to philosophy. You know where you go? Scripture. I say scripture because we don't have prophets walking around anymore. Anybody seen Jeremiah lately? Right here. So you want to know the truth about the gospel, you must go to the inspired, supernatural, divine revelation as the only source, infallible, inerrant, and inspired of God to get it. Nowhere else. In terms of the gospel in the Old Testament, we can refer to countless passages. Brothers and sisters, you know this because if you've been paying attention to anything I've been preaching for any length of time, you know that I'm obsessed with this today. And I am. 
all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, you begin to see in, in primitive, primal stages, these early little, little prefigurings, these little pictures, these little uh, instances of gospel promises. And the entire Old Testament is sort of checkered with these images of the sun throughout. They're everywhere. They're everywhere. And they are concerning His Son. Every Old Testament passage about the Son of God, we don't have time to list them all, is a foundational stone on the trans-testamental structure of the Gospel. Let me just give you one example. Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22. Promised by the prophets in the Scriptures. Where? Well, everywhere, but since we don't have... All day, let's just go here. Genesis chapter 22. You know the story. This is the episode of Abraham and Isaac. And if we consider what happened there, you understand that this narrative, this episode in the life of Abraham is significant. Because here, God demands of Abraham something that if you're just a casual reader of the Word of God and you're just reading through Genesis for the first time, you come upon this episode of God requesting that His covenant servant, Abraham, take His only begotten Son and take Him up to Mount Moriah and slay Him. And if you're reading the Bible, you're saying, I'm literally falling off the stage here. My goodness. You know, I'm exercised today. You know that at that point in the life of Abraham, Abraham must have been so confused. He must have been so utterly beside himself. He knew what God said. Genesis chapter 21, verse 12. He knew that in Genesis 21, 12, God said, it's through Isaac that the promise is going to be realized. That's exactly what Romans 9, verse 7 says. So knowing God's promise, here it is. Why is the promise of God so important, beloved? Because in the promise of God, you have the promise of posterity, in the pro- meaning children, meaning a nation. In the promise of God, all the nations are going to be blessed. In the promise of God, a land is going to be granted to you. In the promise of God, God is going to give, uh, give uh, uh, Abraham descendants, and through those descendants, kings, and thus kingdoms will arise. All of that, gone. If, Abraham obeys God and slays his son. How's God going to do it? How's God going to get it? How's Abraham going to get it? What would you do? Listen, Abraham was probably confused. I don't know why God's asking me to do this. I don't know how God is going to work it out. I don't know how he's going to provide. I don't know what he's going to do. But one thing I know for certain is that God yesterday spoke to me. And listen, if God speaks to you, no, 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 not like that. Not, you know, I have something on my heart. I feel like God spoke to me. No, no, no. We're talking about a vision. We are talking about a supernatural theophany of God coming to Abraham and striking him with terror because Almighty God 
the one who created the stars, the one who created the stars that he pointed Abraham to, Almighty God is telling Abraham, Abraham. Wow, that's it. You know, you go white, you fall over. (laughs) It's over. But God sustained him by his grace so that he heard the command, take your only son, go up the mountain and slay him if you love me. Will you do it for my sake, Abraham? See, the unbeliever, the person that does not have the mind of the Spirit, the person that does not have the mind of Christ, immediately goes to theodicy, meaning the problem between God, and you know, the relation of evil and God or bad things and God, and say, how can God do that? Who is God to tell you to go and slay your only, your only son, the son that you loved? Do you think Abraham was ever at a lower Lower, lower point than this. Never. He must have just been sunk in his stomach, in his gut, not knowing as he looked over at the, 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 the young lad and looked at him and said, Oh, God of my fathers, you're asking me to do the impossible. This is inconceivable that you would ask me to do this. Now, What happens is that Abraham has faith in God so much so that he's willing to obey to go through with it. And what happens? Well, we know the story. If you've been following along, you know the story. Abraham utters the words of faith, and there you see his faith manifested, like in Genesis 22, verse 8. God will provide for himself the lamb from the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together, and what we're seeing here are the footsteps of faith. One step, one foot ahead of the other. Every step a step of faith. Every step weighed a ton on the way up to Mount Moriah. But he knew God will provide. So this apparent dilemma, I put it back on God and I say, God, you must act if this is going to turn out right. They walk together. And then... In the face of certain death, he believed that God was able to provide. Look at verse 13. Then Abraham raised his eyes and saw, or he looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up a burnt offering in the place of his son, in the place of his son, in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide as it is to this very day in the mountain or on the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Now, obviously, the tip, the typology, the imagery here, the, pro, the, the prophecies here are obvious. It was in this very location, Mount Moriah, that would later become Mount Calvary that God would actually take his son there and slay him. And slay him. Now turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews 11. You may be thinking in your mind, what on earth does this have to do with the resurrection? I'm not panicked. Hebrews 11 helped me out. In the book of Hebrews, this episode in the life of Abraham is interpreted as typology of the resurrection. 
Hebrews 11, beginning of verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son as... This is building the intensity, by the way. It was he to whom it was said... In Isaac, your descendants shall be called. There it is. That's what's at stake. That's the weight. That's the gravity of the whole matter. It was through Isaac. And so if you slay Isaac, then what? Now look at verse 19, y'all. He considered that God is able to raise up. Bad translation. God is able to raise people even from the dead. doesn't say that, so I'll give you the literal Greek. It just says that God was able to raise up from the dead. People, okay, fine. NASB, my favorite translation. Anyway, okay translation gets the point across. In other words, it is assigning to God resurrection power. Now, look at the last phrase. From which He also received Him back i.e. from death as a type. Wow. Do you know Abraham went into a delineation so deep in his mind? Because look at verse 19. He considered, lagizamai, he considered, he contemplated. I'm telling you, Abraham went deep within and thought, Lord, whoa, what am I going to do here? And the only thing he came up with was it must be that death cannot stop the promises from being fulfilled. So it must be, it must be, even though Abraham didn't have the New Testament, it must be that this child will be raised from the dead. (laughs) And in that act of faith. That's the whole point of the crucible. That's why God brought him to this place. So that Abraham, by faith, would consider Jesus Christ risen from the grave. No, no, no. Not by name. Not like that. But through the parable of his son. Matter of fact, that word, he received him back as a... Do you know what the word is? For type, it's not the typical word for type. The typical word for type is tupas. Here, uh, 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 Hebrews uses the word parabole, parable. There is a whole story to be told here. That's what Hebrews is saying. There is a whole story to be told in what happened here with Abraham. And so Abraham went into this delineation and by, a pro, um, uh, and by a process of deduction, Abraham arrived at the only conceivable conclusion that God was able to raise the dead. Now, when Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was what? Glad. Follow along. Don't lose. Don't lose. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 56, that Abraham saw my day and he saw, rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and he was glad. Remember where Abraham was in the depths of despair. It's too good. It's too good. 
your only son as good as dead. And what he saw, according to Jesus, I believe Jesus is speaking about this very day right here with Isaac. I don't think he's talking about theophany with the angels in Genesis 18 and those kind of appearances. I think he's saying he saw my resurrection day in what happened in, with Isaac. So think about it. This is the unique gladdening day of Abraham in his entire life. He was never happier, I promise you, than this moment right here that he received Isaac. He can wrap his arms around Isaac, wrap him up in his love, kiss him and hug him and weep over him and say, praise God, God provided. And never be happier than that day ever until heaven. And in that, he saw, he saw the day of Christ. He saw the resurrection principle at work right there. These are the kind of ways, by the way, that the Old Testament promises the gospel. It's not just Genesis 3.15, that kind of promise. It's not just Jeremiah chapter 31. It's not just, you know, the shadows of the law. But it's also in the stories of the Old Testament that we're supposed to see in these stories, the marvelous person and work of Jesus Christ. They don't make sense without it. They don't make sense without it. Now, I got a lot of work to do, so if you need to stand up or stretch, I will not be offended, but I will not budge either. Because next is sort of the components of this gospel that is promised in the Old Testament, in the Scriptures, look at verse 13, concerning His Son, who was born a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness. Why do I read it all? Is because here, moving away from the Old Testament foundations of the gospel, now we move to the gospel, listen closely now, the gospel and the dual estates of Christ. I hammered this home many times before, but, but let me just, as we think about this Old Testament standpoint, several things come into view. Number one, notice that the gospel is organic and progressive. It is revealed in the Old Testament, but it is continually unfolding until we get to the New Testament. Number two, the gospel is also Christocentric. Notice as Paul says, what's the gospel? The gospel is this. Old Testament, concerning his son, son of David, declared to be the son of God, power, the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Hey, what happened to me? Where are we in the equation? You ever preach the gospel without referencing people? See, the gospel is peri concerning his son. So this gospel is a Christ-centered gospel. And we'll get to that in a moment. But before any privilege, any benefit that can be derived from the creature in the interest of salvation, the gospel is exclusively about Jesus Christ, His life, His death, His resurrection, His obedience, and His reward. That's what the gospel is all about. And third, it's organic, it's Christ-centered, and third, 
it focuses our attention. And what comes into view here is the dual estates of Christ. And this may not be immediately perceived here, but the theology is there and it is in what we can call the flesh-spirit dualism or the flesh-spirit contrast. Just look at the text. You see it. He was born a descendant of David, kata according to the flesh. And then he was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead, kata according to the Spirit. And so we have an according to the flesh, according to the Spirit, dualism going on here in this the exegesis of this text, what gives? We need to understand this dualism first from a, a negative standpoint, meaning from what it does not mean, what it is not saying. This is not a contrast merely between the humanity of Christ, flesh, and the deity of Christ, spirit. That's not what Paul's aim is. The aim of Paul is not to show that at one point Jesus was human and that at another point he was divine. No, he's Trinitarian. He believes in the hypostatic union. He knows that Jesus is deity from eternity to eternity. He is God of very God. That's not his point. This is also not to be conceived as a declaration of the assumption of sonship. In other words, this is not Jesus at the resurrection becoming the Son of God. He already was that. For all eternity, He was that. He is the eternal Son of God. I mean, at His baptism, the Father said, This is my beloved Son. So it cannot be that only upon His resurrection, He is becomes the Son of God. Absolutely not. None of those things are helpful. None of those things are in view. It's not the filial relationship, I mean the family relationship of the triune God. Neither is it the processions, meaning the ordering of the Trinity and which one sort of relates to which one in what way. That's not what's in view. What's in view here is the concept of power. How many of you see that? you got to keep your eye right on the text of verse 4. Power. Power is contrasted with what came before it. What came before it? Flesh. When Jesus was born as a descendant of David, according to the flesh, He was born into a state of weakness. And so we're seeing Jesus in His earthly session, in a state of weakness that He came, but His weakness, listen, don't see it as a negative, positive thing. Are you guys... Seeing that, it's not negative to be born a descendant of David according to the flesh. And then we get to the positive part, which is to be uh, declared the Son of God empowered by the Spirit of holiness. That's not it. His weakness was not His wrongness. Because there's nothing wrong with Jesus. Nothing that He did was ever wrong. It's not an issue of weakness, meaning something deficient within Himself. Oh, no, 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 brothers and sisters. We're looking at the gospel. And the gospel is comprised of his rightness in weakness and his rightness in power. You see? And, and, and why did he do this? I am really... Somebody's got to put a seatbelt on me or something up here. What is this all about? 
Turn to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Why do you have to come? Why do you have to do this? Well, of course, to be born, therefore, not only fulfills the messianic side of things, the prophecies, it also constitutes him as our representative high priest, our brother who takes our place, becomes our substitute in order to suffer in our stead as our surety, meaning the guarantee of the covenant bond between God and man. That's why he did it. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. He had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. So the reason he came in weakness was ultimately so that he would be our lamb. Our lamb. Propitiation means sacrifice that takes away wrath. And Jesus came into this world. Came into this world. Because His people in their sins were presently under the wrath of an almighty God. And the only way to fix that situation is to enter into creation and to take upon the necessary weakness to identify as one of us. In His incarnation, Jesus didn't cheat. You ever think of it that way? Yeah, Jesus went through stuff, but He was God, so it kind of gets Him off the hook. He didn't really know what it meant to be human. Eh, That's heresy. Let's go back to church history. You just committed some serious heresy there. No. Fully man, fully God. Everything that you and I experience, isn't that comforting, brethren? Everything that we experience in our, in our humanity, Jesus experienced it all except for... Man, you guys were ready to correct me if I didn't say that. <laughs> but that's orthodox. That's correct. He was made like us in every respect, yet without sin. Okay, I have more to say on the weakness, but what about the power? See, what happens here is that Jesus, the Son of God, moves into a different mode. Oh, theologians grapple with these words. How do we explain it? He moved into a different mode of existence, a different sphere of and ultimately, what I'm going to add to John Murray's commentary on the book of Romans, he, he, he moves into a different realm. So we go from an earthly session in weakness to a heavenly session in power. And that's what's in view. It is these dual estates of Christ that is the very soul of the gospel. Turn with me in your Bibles, would you? 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. You know this verse. It is these two aspects of weak power that is the soul, the very essence of our gospel of salvation. That's what Peter says. As to this salvation, 
1 Peter 1.10, The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. That agrees perfectly with what Paul's saying here in Romans. Seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted two things. Number one, suffering. Number two, glory. You see that? That's the gospel. That's the gospel. The gospel is suffering and then glory. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, i.e., New Testament, New Covenant Christians. New Covenant Christians. They were serving those who would come into a fuller uh, realization of fulfillment of all these things in the New Covenant. Oh, I can go on and on, but here's the deal. Look at what it says. It was revealed to them that they were serving you in these things which now they have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. And so what Peter is saying here is that the angels are aglow with heavenly wonder, burning, as it were, with heavenly desire to look into and to comprehend the depths of of the divine mysteries that is Jesus Christ. Incomprehensible. The angels don't have omniscience. Right? The angels do not have sovereignty. The angels don't know the future the way that God does. How is it that the divine Logos, the Word of God, is going to take flesh, go down, as Romans 8 says, in the likeness of sinful flesh and dwell among a sinful people like Isaiah, who when Isaiah dwelt among a sinful people, he became a sinner aware of his sin. How is Jesus going to come into an asionic mode of existence and not be in need of Cleansing from the altar. Yeah. It's like study church history and read the councils. I don't know. (laughs) You better study Christology. You will figure all the hypostatic union mysteries out. This is what they were gawking at. This is what they were looking into. Is these kinds of things. Now, let's try to wrap this up. Because he says that Jesus was declared the Son of God with power How? Through the instrumentality of the resurrection, we understand that. It was through the resurrection that Jesus Christ came into the mode and sphere and realm of power. Of power. This uh, mode of existence is so powerful, brothers and sisters, it cannot be fully captured. It cannot be fully comprehended. Apart from Paul's use of the word pneuma, spirit. Can't use anything else. It's like nothing else will enable him to comprehend this new mode of power than to say spirit. See, this is the new association and it's no longer simply humanity in weakness and suffering, but now it's in power and in power He is now endowed with the Spirit of God with all fullness 
and holiness. Don't you understand? Power and holiness, these are the... These are the only adequate terms to describe the new estate of Christ. Nothing else will do it. Some of you know that um, Joseph Urban and I went to a conference a couple weeks ago where we listened to 12 lectures by Dr. Lane Tipton. And uh, I found this quote by Tipton in this book I have. And this is what Lane Tipton said. I tell you, that guy, that guy, made, that guy really affected me. Um, he really affected me. He, not only was he a dear, but you know, some of these guys, these theologians, they're so smart. They're so respected. They're so educated. They're so untouchable, right? Uh, not Dr. Tipton. He's a throw your arm around you, love you, you know, <laughs> totally embrace you kind of guy. Love it. Love it. Totally approachable. He texted me after the conference. I felt real special. This is what he says in a book called Confident of Better Things. Jesus is raised to a new order of life in the Spirit. No longer the Son of God in weakness and suffering, susceptible to the powers of the present age and bound by the cords of death. Jesus is now declared the Son of God in power, the power of an indestructible life that dawns upon the resurrection. That's exactly right. Having lived a perfect life, Having died a perfect death, Jesus was raised in power. And now that Jesus has been transitioned into a new mode of existence, a new order of the Spirit, He has now been clothed with eschatological power. This is your Jesus now. Clothed with all authority. Remember that? Matthew 28. Clothed with the power of the Spirit. The power to fully bear the Spirit in His humanity. On earth, we didn't see that. It was veiled. The union was there, but the outer power was veiled. Momentarily at times, sort of revealed. Remember the Mount of Transfiguration? He transforms into His, into some kind of crazy heavenly condition. I don't know how disciples even survive that. Just a glimpse of the powers of the age to come on the mount. So that now He is clothed with this Spirit. He is given this power. He is given this glory. And now He is seated at the right hand of power. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And through the resurrection, Jesus now assumes untold, untold unity with the Spirit. So much so... It's controversial as I'm going to get today. So much so, beloved, that Jesus is even now called the Spirit. This is how united they are. This is how much He bears the Spirit now in His being, in His his humanity. You can say, Jesus, Lord, is the Spirit. And I know that freaks us out as Trinitarians. But Paul was a Trinitarian. It didn't freak him out. He used it. I'll give you two places. Ready? It's like this. 1 Corinthians 15, verse, 40, verse 46. The last Adam, that is Jesus, he became a life-giving pneuma, spirit. And 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. Ready? 
The Lord, that is Jesus, in the context, you can't get away from it, Jesus is the Spirit, not ontologically. Meaning He did not become the person of the Spirit, but He is so functionally united with the Spirit. It's the same thing that Jesus can say. The disciples say it. Show us the Father. And Jesus says, haven't I been with you long enough? You still questioning me about the Father, right? Have you seen the Father? You've seen me. What's he saying there? Basically the same thing. We are in such functional unity, Father and Son, that what you see in me is the Father. And it's the same way. Now Christ in His resurrected form now is a life-giving Spirit. Now the Lord Jesus is the Spirit in that sense. In His exaltation. Jesus has such a supply and control of the Spirit that the very essence of the quality of life He now enjoys in the Spirit can only be characterized by the Spirit's essential attribute, i.e., holiness. You and I have never experienced one day in that holiness. Never. Never have. That's what heaven is. Heaven is no capacity to sin. Not for Jesus, because He never sinned, but but heaven is also being in a place no capacity for sin to even come in. No capacity to sin. No capacity for sin to come in. No more curse. No more death. Nothing abominable. Nothing unclean. Everything is as pure as heaven. (laughs) Snow is too dirty. Filtered water, I don't care how much you filter it, too dirty. I don't care what, you know, they got the water. It amazes me. I go to Costco, you know, $2 for 40 bottles of this water. And then you go over here and get this other expensive, you get it, you know, $25, you know, for the same amount of water. What happened? Were you drinking poison? Okay, anyway. Obviously not pure. So what about us? Here we are, brothers and sisters. Jesus Christ is risen. He is clothed with unspeakable power and unspeakable authority in the Spirit. And Pastor Emilio, we've got guests today, probably. Well, I know we do. You haven't said one thing about us. Do you feel empty? I don't. I feel full, marveling at Him. This is what I mean. It's too good. It's too good. Why is it too good? Here's why it's too good, brothers and sisters, because if you missed it, the whole notion of Christ doing these things, His life, His death, this is us represented in Him through union with Christ. It's like this. If the sign on the lawn says, He is risen, then then because of his resurrection, according to Paul, the sign on the lawn should say, He is risen, therefore I am risen. Oh, now we start seeing how all of this 
power and glory and holiness and heaven and heavenly session, how these things are going to come to us. Oh, so because he is risen, I am risen. See, here's the thing. The dual estates of Christ teaches us this way. I will one day move out of my present poverty and weakness and into his kingdom and power and glory because of my union with him. Because he became for a little while lower than the angels, brothers and sisters, one day you and I will rule the angels. Because he became a servant poured himself out to death. We will reign with him. Because he came as the suffering son of David, I will shine, you will shine, we will shine with the glorious freedom of the children of God. Therefore, brothers and sisters, rising up out of the ashes of the present gospel distress is the truly, truly, truly good news that God saves sinners through Jesus Christ and his exclamation point was the resurrection. Nothing left to say. One last thing, and I leave us on an evangelistic note. Look at the text. Oh, that everyone here had a Bible and their eyes are on the text. This is probably the most important thing I'll say all day to you. He was raised from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness. There it is. Jesus Christ, that's who was raised. And my friends, this last word, I pray, will send chills down your spine if you are not in a saving relationship with Jesus because it says, our Lord. If He's not your Lord, the reality is is that your economy, your existence will go in the absolute reverse. You will not go to power. You will go from weakness to shame. You will not go to heaven You will go from decay and weakness in this life to hell and to death. If you will not allow Him to bear the curse for you and to rise out of the cursed grave for you, then the grave is just the beginning of your curse. Oh, may God, every person in this room, may God constrain you until you can say, He is my Lord. All of that power, all that glory, all that life, all that resurrection, power and glory is mine. We would, yes! That's how I know the sermons are good, by the way. Babies try to match my preaching. (laughs) Out of the mouth of bays. We cry out for you. I hope today you didn't come here and you say, well, I heard a pastor just yell and yell and yell. Father, man, Lord, 